So guys, this is Seth, and um, he lives in New York City. He works with Exponent Group, which is uh, a group that is trying to catalyze uh, church planning and discipleship movements in the Northeast region. Is that is that about right? Uh, no, I think we work a bit more broadly than that. Okay, but we're we're based in the Northeast. Yeah. Okay, based in the Northeast, but all over. And, um, you know, Seth yesterday said he's not a church planner, and I would say maybe he's more of a church plant catalyzer, if that's accurate. I think that's fair. And he's been in New York City for seven plus years, I believe you said? Uh, yeah, eight years. Eight years, and um, working mostly among immigrant populations, looking to catalyze churches. And today, uh, he's going to talk a little bit about uh, being on mission where you live, learn, work, and play, all right? So I'm going to pray for you and then take it away. Lord, um, we love you, and we're grateful for this morning and for Seth. So, Lord, just bless him as he speaks, and we pray you would help us to open our hearts to what you're saying and to respond. Amen. Thanks, Seth. Good morning. Uh, like Brian said, I, I live in the Bronx, uh, and I work there as an evangelist and a missionary for a long time. I was the head of a team of missionaries. And I'm going to be really honest with you, I don't like to tell people what I do for a living. Uh, when they say, you know, what, oh, what do you, you know, what line of work are you in? I, I just really don't like saying evangelist. Uh, and there's a couple reasons for that if I think about it. You know, one of those is, is a problem we run into in all sorts of spheres of life, not just religious life, that you can't always use language and assume that it means what you mean by it. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I remember not long ago, well, no, it was long ago, but for the sake of this sermon, it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> I, I was, the sports center was on in the background of somewhere where I was, and the commentator talking about a recent football game said that the defense literally smothered their opponents. Now, I did not watch this game, but I wish I had, because if they literally smothered their opponents, I would love to see the defensive line run out there with pillows and just smother them into the ground. But I suspect that wasn't the case. Language doesn't always mean what we think it means or mean by it. Uh, but when I, when I think about it more deeply, I think honestly there's, there's sort of an imposter syndrome that I have with using that language. I'm an evangelist. I'm a missionary. I don't love the way that feels because if you were to look at my daily life, I, you might suspect I don't have a job. Uh, most of my time is in bars and neighborhood barbecues and hanging out in people's living rooms, having spiritual conversations, and it doesn't look like we're doing anything very important. It's pretty underwhelming. And even, even when those evangelistic conversations go well and we start a house church and, you know, people get baptized, if you're in the room, it's pretty underwhelming. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of Damascus Road experiences coming out of my daily life. It just doesn't seem all that important. And so when we use language like missionary and, and working for the mission of God, the kingdom of God, all of that language just seems too big. It seems too important to describe what I do in my daily life. And so it feels disorienting. And it, it feels like too grand of language to describe the ministry we do. Which brings us to our text today. Uh, I don't know what kind of church you are, but if you're one that flips over with me, we're going to be in Exodus 19. And this is an important moment in the life of of Israel and a, a really important moment in Scripture. 
because this is Israel encountering God on Mount Sinai. And for the rest of Scripture, whenever Israel asks the question, what defines us? What defines our mission? What defines our identity as a people? They will point back to these verses as the quintessential moment of definition in the life of the people of God. So let's read. On the third day, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and, you've, and how I bore you on wings of eagles and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down, and he called the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up onto the mountain or even touch its edge. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their garments. And he said, Be ready for the third day. And on the third day there was thunder and lightning, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in a smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke from a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered in thunder. The Lord came on the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through the Lord and perish. And also the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate them, lest the Lord himself break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits on the mountain. And the Lord said, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now that's long, but there are a couple of takeaways that I would point out to you from this passage. And one is that Moses, at 80 years old, just ascended and descended Mount Sinai three times. I don't have anywhere I'm going with that. I just think that's impressive. Uh, 
But the point deeper than that uh, that I would want you to take away from this is just how anticlimactic it is. Did you get that sense? God on the mountain, thunder, smoke, trembling, fire. Don't even come near me or, or my very being may break out and kill you. And the people said, oh, no, no, we, we will hear and we will do. And then what does God tell them to do? In the very next verse, God says, here's, here's how you'll be my consecrated people. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. When foreigners and immigrants move among you, treat them like your own people. He gives them Torah. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And it feels anticlimactic, doesn't it? Doesn't that just not feel big enough as the response to this event? When, when God comes down and thunder and smoke and lightning and thunder and fire and says, here's the mission, you expect God to say something like, here, O Israel, only you can take the ring of power and throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. Here, O Israel, only you can defeat the Sith and bring balance to the force. But no, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And it just doesn't feel big enough. It feels somewhat ironic. And ironic is kind of like literally. It's another one of those words that we misuse all the time. I, I will point you toward poet laureate Alanis Morissette, uh, who has a song titled Ironic that goes as follows. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you already paid. It's the good advice that you didn't take. Who would have thought it figures isn't it ironic? To which if this is a pop quiz, the answer is no. That's not irony. It's just not. That's unfortunate coincidences, Alanis. I'm sorry if you're here, but that's not irony. <laughs> irony is the dramatic reversal. Irony is the fact that, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you drive past the hospital and the nurses are, are standing outside smoking. Irony is the fact that the only Braille that I've ever seen at the bank is in the drive through ATM. Irony is, is Tom Sawyer sitting up in the rafters of his own funeral and, and people are weeping and saying, oh, if Tom were still alive, we would tell him how much we loved him. And he comes out of the rafters and says, oh, I'm not dead. And they say, Tom, you were the liar and the cheat that we always knew that you were. That's irony. And, and our story is ironic, that God is working in the world in this way. This is the covenant he has with his people. Uh, now, Brian has warned me that some of you are heretics. Uh, so I know that some of you are probably thinking, well, that's the Old Testament. That's Israel. We're New Testament people. We're the church. But this is not the last time we're going to encounter this story. In Matthew 5 through 7, we will again find God on the mountaintop. And the people of God will come and hear God speak in his own voice, and he will say, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother and sister. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Let's not lust at all. How about that? You've heard it said, don't lie. I tell you, don't swear any kind of oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Give to the one who asks, and don't turn away from the one who seeks to borrow from you. This is the mission I'm calling my disciples into. It just doesn't feel big enough. It doesn't feel big enough. 
that the God who created the universe and has entered into human history is choosing to reconcile all things through the little way of Jesus. Is that a phrase you know? Little way of Jesus? It comes from uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux, who was a French nun who died at the age of 25 in the early part of the 20th century. And her life was so remarkable that all of the nuns in her convent asked her to write her autobiography so that they would have it to, to teach new nuns this lifestyle. And I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you, but she says, when, when I entered the convent, I wanted to be a great saint. I wanted to do incredible things that would cause people to see my life and devote themselves to God. And as I, as I garden in the convent, I realized that the splendor of the lily and, and the brilliance of the, the rose, they don't steal from the little violet it's scent, or from the daisy, it's simple charm. So she said, I wish only to be a little flower in the garden of God. And that's how she lived her life. That, you know, when, when one of the nuns didn't do her chores, she just comes up behind, no need to cause drama, I'll just, I'll just do that for them. When someone gets sick in the convent, she would go, she would take care of them, even though sick people are gross uh, and not terribly fun to take care of. And she would, at, at mealtimes, seek out the most annoying and needy nuns to sit with at lunch so she could listen to them, complain about their petty problems, and in this way love them the way that Jesus would. And she called this the little way of Jesus. And I, I think we all know those nuns. You know, I think our ministry is probably made up entirely of just those nuns. Uh, because most of my day is spent in bars and going to barbecues and hanging out in people's living rooms, having spiritual conversations. And I'm there to make disciples who make disciples, who plant churches, who help the kingdom of God break out in my city and other regions where we work. And really what I mostly end up doing is listening to people's petty problems and listening to them complain and having no real solutions to any of those problems. And I get frustrated and, and these people are, they're wasting my time. And why are we doing this? Why are we engaging with these people who are seemingly such distractions for the important work of the kingdom of God that I as a missionary have been called to do. But you see the irony. Because the God who created the universe and has entered into human history on a mission to reconcile all things has invited us to be co-workers through the little way of Jesus. Isn't it ironic?